2014 is probably when it kind of came back. I realized I had enough. I had, I'd kind of dug myself out of the hole and I'd, I could rest easy a little bit. And, you know, as the older you get, the more you realize, you know, that this life's not all about working all the time. And, and I, don't, I don't need to hustle as, as much as I did when I was younger. And so I want to take a little bit of time and relax and, and just focus on other things. You know, I enjoy all mm-hmm. kinds of activities, snowboarding, rock climbing, dirt biking, just all that kind of stuff. And so I just want to spend more time, just have a little more, more balance is all. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, episode 229. Jace, what's going on? How are you? Doing great, man. How are you doing? Dude, I'm doing great. I got a, an interesting story this week. So I guess, when are we here? We're mid-March now, but January or February, I can't remember. I think I waited a few weeks, but I went in to fund my Roth. And the last couple of years, I've been doing backdoor, but I saw my Roth account in my Fidelity account and not thinking, I don't know if it was late at night or early in the morning, I wasn't thinking. And I went in and I just transferred you know, six grand from my checking account right into my Roth. And then is that a rookie mistake or what? Oh yeah, dude, total. <laughs> and then a week or two later, I'm sitting there thinking, and I didn't invest it right away because I thought, you know what, I'm just going to sit on this for a sec. The market might drop. All this Russia stuff started happening, right? And then I realized, oh shoot, I just transferred like straight to my Roth, but there's income limits, and I couldn't contribute straight to a Roth, so I should have contributed to my traditional and then backdoored it to my Roth which I've done, you know, the last couple times. <laughs> anyway, so then I said, I'll just transfer the money out of my Roth back to my checking and then put it into my traditional. So then I do that and then I realize, oh, that was pretty stupid too because now they think it's a it's a conversion. Well, not a conversion, but they think it's a withdrawal, right? An early withdrawal. Oh, an early withdrawal from my oh, Roth. Geez. <laughs> anyway, so I call up and then I try to I try to contribute to my traditional. But I can't. <laughs> But I can't because Fidelity says you've already tra- you've already contributed six thousand dollars in retirement funds this year. Oh man, what a mess! So then I call Fidelity. I said, "Hey, here's what happened. You know, I tried. I was trying to go backdoor, but I wasn't thinking. I transferred and directed to my Roth. Then I pulled it out of my Roth, and now it won't let me transfer my traditional." The guy on the phone goes, "Uh, this is pretty complicated. Can I put you on hold?" <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I get passed around, I get to the retirement thing, and they said, okay, like, you know, no big deal. All you should have done is when you transferred into your Roth, you should have just contacted us, and instead of pulling it out, you should have just done like a change in, I can't remember what they said, a change in classification or something, and then on their end, they would have just transferred it, you know, to the traditional and kind of reclassed it. And then I could have backdoored it to a Roth. But anyway, it was a headache. It's still kind of a headache. I did it for my wife's account too. So I got to figure that one out too. But I mean, no big deal in, in the end of it. You know, they'll figure it out on the tax forms and all that. And they'll go to the traditional and I'll be able to backdoor it to the Roth. But I just, I don't know what I was thinking. And just a learning lesson, I guess, for me and others that be careful and, and don't do this stuff in your sleep because I just messed mine up and I've been doing it for a long, long time. <laughs> it's a good thing you didn't have that invested or anything and like see one of these market drops or something. And then you had less money to put in there and everything else yeah. too. Yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. And then I pulled it out and it's like, oh, well, now you've taken an early conversion from your Roth. So now you can pay tax on that too. Oh, jeez, like, oh, man. Boy, this is a mess. <laughs> 
Good so, lesson for sure. I know, and I I don't know. I, I look back at it now. It's like how could you how could you do that? But I did. I did. <laughs> You know, I sit here and talk about Roth IRAs every week and I messed mine up. So there you go. I'll be your professional to help you next time. (laughs) I know. I know. Stuff can get confusing, right? It totally can. I'm trying to figure out the traditional or, you know, doing the back door and how long do I have to wait and how do I do this and where does it show up on my forms? Yeah. And then it's like, all right, you get to the point where it's a no brainer. And then here I go. 2022. Anyway. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my lesson learned for the day. Nice. Anyway, last week, quick recap, we had Adam. He's a banker, works primarily in the commercial real estate play uh, space and net worth of 1.4. This week, a little bit higher net worth, 3.3. This time, a real estate investor, Adam, even though he worked in commercial real estate, had no real estate investments. So this week, 3.3 with Jason. So should be interesting there um, and get a little more of the real estate side. Um, and, and, you know, we got other fun interviews coming up, right, Jay? So this is a good one with Jason and we look forward to it. And without any further delay, let's jump right into it. Jason, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. Um, I grew up in uh, Montana and I moved to Las Vegas, uh, to become an appraisal intern. I did that for about seven years and all the meanwhile, uh, you know, fixing and flipping houses. And, uh, then I moved to Arizona for a bit and then to Utah I got I I first became a millionaire when I was 26, and I was super excited about that. Uh, then 2005 through 2008 happened, and I lost it all. <laughs> so I had to ended up about 250 thousand in the hole. Then from there, I had to kind of dig myself back. I got my broker's license and did some real estate for a while. All the while, you know, investing in real estate and flipping houses and doing that sort of thing. And now um, I do a lot of lease options, a lot of rental properties. I've done about every kind of real estate transaction that's out there. I've just I just love real estate. I get kind of ADD about it after a couple of years of doing real estate. I got a little bored of that and so just jumped to the next thing, but real estate is so vast. It's I've been I've been blessed to be able to, you know, satisfy all my curiosities within that same niche and and I just I just love it. So that's kind of my background and kind of what I'm doing now. Awesome. And what's your net worth today? I think it's between 3 and 4 million. Nice. And how is that divided up? So it's it's all in real estate mostly. My net worth, I think it breaks down 1.4 million is in my personal portfolio, just real estate that I've bought and kept throughout the years. Uh, 1.7 of that equity is in is my half of a rental portfolio I have with a partner, and he was on your podcast. Um, and then that's about just shy of two hundred thousand dollars in personal items like trucks and cars and tractors and whatnot. Wow, and you've got nothing in the market. Nothing. I am. I, I just don't know anything about stocks. I know enough to know that I can't control it near as much as I can with real estate. You know, with real estate in 2005, when the market was collapsing as an appraiser, you know, I was getting into the stats every day. You know, I was looking at how many homes were on the market and looking at how days on market and all these different stats. And just every single day I was looking at it and realizing that this couldn't continue. And I could see the trend starting at the end of 2005. That's when kind of the, the start of the bell curve happened. and. My me and my buddies started to get out of everything we had, and so being able to predict, you know, six months in advance what's going to happen is not not to say you can do that all the time, but you know, judging off you know what what I see in the stocks, it's just it's totally foreign to me, and I just I can't I have a really hard time putting my money in somebody else's hands, especially when my returns are infinitely better than you know what I would see in the stock market or from what I hear. Yes, yeah, so you didn't want to get on any of this crazy Bitcoin or 
GameStop or well, any of these I mean, crazy rides? Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, been really, I've been really tempted, honestly, several times. You know, you look at this stuff and, and everybody's making hand over fist. And I have people that, that come to me just as a real estate agent. You know, that's a, a portion of my income as, as a real estate broker and agent. And I get these people to call me and they say, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm selling my house. I'm putting it on to Bitcoin. You know, I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> no way. So anyway, I, I see it out there and it's very tempting. But, you know, it, it's a it's a whole learning curve, you know, that I just I don't want to risk losing my money trying to learn. Uh, and I don't trust anybody else with my own money, you know, giving it to a broker or someone like that. And that may be a little naive and a little unbalanced in my portfolio, but uh, I just try and focus on my what I know well in my trade and, and what I can control. And I can, for the most part, I can control the real estate that I have and the balance in my portfolio. And and I really look forward because I lost a million bucks in the last crash. And I was facing being homeless at that time because, as like I said, we were we saw the trends coming. We were selling our houses. I had about 50% equity in all my houses. And I thought I was playing it smart because all my buddies would go out there and they'd buy these properties and leverage them to 90%. And they'd go out and buy five more and then leverage those to 90%. And they had way more houses than I did. But I just knew that this correction was happening. So I, I had 50% equity in all my properties, playing it safe. But nobody predicted what happened in 2005, 2008. It just was so much worse than anyone predicted. And as the property values were going down, 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 I'm like, oh man, I got to sell this one. Okay, now I got to sell this one. And I guess, I, and so I ended up selling all my properties and not and only having to foreclose on two properties. And those are the ones that I was emotionally invested in. Uh, one of them was a 30 acre property in Montana with a cabin and a creek. And I just, it was my forever property. I was never going to let that thing go. But in the end, I couldn't, I couldn't keep it because, you know, the house of cards was falling down. And so in the end, I uh, lost all that money and had to kind of dig myself out of a hole. I ended up, my parents, you know, I've never, I grew up poor and my parents never really had any money, but during this time, they just happened to have a lot of equity in their house and they refinanced it and they wanted to give it to me to see if I could like, you know, save the empire type of thing. So I spent their $200,000 that they pulled out of their house and ended up not being able to, you know, really change the trajectory of the market anyway. And so I was in, in the whole $250,000 and it's not like I can declare bankruptcy at that point, right? Because this is my parents' money that I owed. And so I was 250 grand in the debt to my parents and I was like, okay, how am I going to work this out? So I just had to just bite down and kind of grit and bear it and work my way out. Yeah, that's crazy. Do you feel like we're getting into a little bit of a bubble now at all? Not at all. I am very, uh, I'm very aggressive on this market and, and it really, really the fundamentals in my mind come down to simple supply and demand. Back in 2005, it, there was there was a lot of demand, but there was also a lot of supply. You'd go down the street in my neighborhood, and it was the, these new developed neighborhoods, and there would be, you know, one out of every five homes would be occupied because everyone was buying up on speculation. And anyone could buy a house, people that couldn't even afford it could buy a house. And so that was a, it was a false supply in my mind, or a false demand, I mean. The, these you couldn't rent out like the house that I was in. I bought it for three hundred fifty thousand, or it was worth three hundred fifty thousand at the time. I could only rent it out for five to six hundred bucks a month, so it made no sense whatsoever. And you know now it's it's a totally different market. The last and then eight years per, eight years uh, post crash, all the builders got wiped out. Right, no, very few builders actually survived. And for the next the five years after that, five to eight years after the crash. There was no new supply introduced into the real estate market. I mean, I, when I say none, I mean very little comparatively to what was happening before. And so, but there were still babies being born, people graduating, people migrating to the country. There was still 
increasing demand and it ate up all the inventory that was there and then some, and then, I don't know, four or five years ago, builders started to realize this and they started to dip their toes back in and, and start building houses, but it was too little too late. The, you know, it was just so much demand. And now, like, for example, in our market in Phoenix, I actually work in North Carolina, Montana and and the Phoenix area. Uh, several different markets, and every three of those markets has such a limited supply right now. We're we're at like five thousand active homes for sale when there's normally thirty thousand, and that's a seller's market at thirty thousand. So there's just absolutely nothing for sale. So it feels a lot like two thousand four, but it's different because now I can rent every house that I have. I can rent out in cash flow. Last time, as the values went down, really the only choice that people had was to continue to make the mortgage payment or try to rent it out for you know, a certain amount and then negatively cash flow by, you know, thousand bucks and then let it go. You know, it, was, it wasn't really much of an option. Now, if somebody gets in trouble, they can just rent out their house or sell it. So barring any kind of governmental intervention or monetary, you know, the dollar monetary system getting all whacked up with the U.S. Uh, reserve change there, I don't see anything in the near future, you know, within the next year. Anyway, I, I'm feeling pretty confident about this year being just a, a gangbuster year for real estate. Sorry, that was a long one. So, this episode is sponsored by Ritual. Protein powders can be intimidating, but the fact is we all need protein. It's not just about muscles. Protein helps support bone health and satiety. As we go through life, our protein needs change. Ritual's essential protein is a delicious plant-based protein powder with three distinct formulas designed to meet the body's challenging protein needs. Each of the formulas has 20 grams of pea protein per serving. With Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain, you know what, how, and why of every labeled ingredient. Great taste. Delicious handcrafted vanilla flavor from a sustainably harvested Madagascar vanilla bean extract. Ready to shake up your protein, Ritual? Millionaires and Veiled listeners get 10% off during their first three months at ritual.com slash millionaire. Ritual even offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love. Visit ritual.com slash millionaire today for 10% off your first three months. No, no, that's okay. It's a good answer. So what about for the bigger stuff like multifamily? Because to me, it seems like people are chasing yields yep. and it's yep. becoming lower and lower, right? I mean, now I'm glad people you are buy, yeah. buying at four or five, six caps. And it, it just seems like in that sense, some of the stuff could be, could be overpriced. I absolutely agree. I'm glad you mentioned that because that would have, you know, that my, my answer wasn't quite complete. Because yeah, it, yeah, cap rates are just ridiculous right now. And but that it does have to do with the the low rates that you can borrow money at, right? So if I can borrow money at three percent, you know, I need to make you know at least three percent to break even. You know, so there the those cap rates do have a correlation to the um, the ease of borrowing money. Uh, but on on multifamily, we're pretty aggressive in our portfolio. With uh, we don't buy anything less than a ten cap. Uh, unless we have a huge value add uh, opportunity in a property. And mostly the way that materializes is in smaller multifamily. A lot of the big stuff, just there's too many institutional, there's too much institutional competition. We just can't, we can't get in anywhere near that. I, I mean, I feel like that could adjust and especially, especially uh, office space. I think with COVID, the way that, the way that it is, people not having to work from home, I was actually talking to a bank the other day, a vice president of a bank. He said, we'll never sign a commercial lease again. He's like, all of our people working from home, it, we're, we're, it's working. We're losing a little bit of productivity because of that. But we're not going to re-sign these leases because there's no point. <clears throat> and I see, so I think as these leases start to renew a couple of years out from now, 
they just won't renew and there'll be a lot of inventory in that office space available. So office space, I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. If you're in office space, I would sell it. I'm telling my partner, I was like, you got to sell your office building. But again, that's, that's his, his home office and that's where he works. He didn't want to sell it. But, you know, in my opinion, I think that's, that's, there's going to be some huge opportunities to buy cheap office buildings down the road. But as, like you said, going back to your question, multifamily, I really feel like that is a little bit overpriced, but uh, we're still able to find deals out there and we, we buy them at right around a 10 cap. And I know that sounds kind of crazy, but and these are smaller, you know, more mom and pop type things. And we, and we you know, they, they need some love. And so we go in there and we give them that love and, and uh, increase that cap rate even better. Well, good for you. And and let me just circle back. You mentioned to Jason his first question that you're previously in 2008 or before that, some of yours had just 50% LTV on it, right? So you had a lot of equity in those. Oh, yeah. In, every, in that. yeah every, single, every single property I had had at least 50% equity, and I had a million dollars in net worth at the time. Uh, and I, I, me and my partner kind of argue back and forth all the time about I think net worth is, is silly and, and not really relevant to me because, you know, I've been a millionaire, a multimillionaire now several times. And it doesn't change my life at all. You know, I'm still, I'm still living in the same house. Uh, I still live on a fraction of my income, but I, the cash flow is what really is getting me excited now. Cause that, that just having that million dollars, you know, that title doesn't really do anything for me. It doesn't change the, the thing, anything at the end of the day, but if I have 10 to 20 grand a month coming in cash flow, that that's a life changing proposition, right? Yeah. So my, just my follow-up is if you're at 50% leverage on or 50% equity, I mean, it seemed like you wouldn't have any problems with a property like that. Well, it depends on where you're at. If you're in Nebraska where the values only went up 10 to 20% and then they came down maybe 30%, that's not a big deal. But here in, in like, I call them the frontier areas. So on the outskirts where, where the real appreciation was happening back in the day. And that's where, of course, I was buying properties because why not? <laughs> you know, And like I said, these, this was in the outskirts of the Phoenix area. They were just building like crazy. And this that, and same thing in Montana. They were just building like bonkers. And in the end, there was just too much supply. And so if you're in Nebraska, you know, and the values only went up a little bit because there's not that much turnover, there's not that much appreciation, the values didn't correct as much as they did here. So that's why I got wiped out. I wasn't diversified into different markets and I didn't have that cash flow to, to sustain me through the hard times. Or the so legitimate that same house that I told you about at auction that was three hundred fifty thousand dollars that I could rent out for five hundred. When I actually sold it at foreclosure auction, it went for ninety thousand dollars. So that kind of gives you wow. a, a dynamic of how much the values change from high to low. So what's your? I mean, you're pretty split portfolio wise. You got about three million just over in in. I assume that's equity, right? In real estate, and you're you're pretty split between real estate that you own and that you own. Is it just with one partner? Yeah. Yep. So how do you, how, how did you kind of bifurcate the two, which, how did you know what we wanted to buy on your own, what you wanted to buy with your partner? How did that split come to be? That was kind of, it's kind of a funny, funny situation. You know, back in 2016 is when my partner and I kind of did our first deal and he, he didn't know a whole lot about real estate. He had taken, you know, uh, he'd taken a seminar and he knew I was in real estate. So he said, Hey, let's do a deal together. And I said, well, I've got this deal that, you know, I'll, you can be the hard money lender and, you know, I'll, I'll show you how to do it and, you know, see if it works. And so he, you know, he ended up making like $8,000 on the deal. I made 40,000 and he was like, man, that that's cool. I want to do, I want to be involved in what on your side of the fence, right? I don't want to be just hard my lender. And so we did a deal together and it worked out. You know, you, you, when you, when you're working with partnerships, in my mind, you do a deal and if it works, I've, I've done plenty of partnerships and the ones that kind of flourish 
it's honestly, it's, it's organic. It's not, it's, it, it hasn't been forced. Uh, it's just, it works. We work together well together and we did a deal and we're like, okay, let's do another one. And then, you know, he, he, we always joke, you know, he's the gas and I'm the brakes because I lost my shirt in the last crash. I'm always very cautious and very hesitant, very conservative. And so, you know, he'll be like, bye, bye, bye. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, let's, let's really look at the values. I've been an appraiser for 20 years. So I, I'm, I'm really good at the values. And so I'll be, you know, pulling the plug on a lot of, a lot of deals. But to answer your question, as these deals come in, most of my portfolio I had before I partnered up with my partner. I, I had already had about a million dollars worth of equity at this, at this point back in 2016. And this was between 2008 or 2006 and 2010 is when it all came crashing down. I was negative 250. And then over the next few years, I dug my way back. And then by 2016, I had about a million dollars again, just in, just in deals that I'd done, flips that I'd done, deals that I worked out. And then I started working out with him and it, it was, I can't believe, and I'm, I'm such a proponent for partnerships because I'm able to grow now almost four times as fast as I could before. Like it took me, every time I've got 2 million bucks, it's taken me about six years. And since I partnered up, I've been doing about a million dollars a year in, some, in the last three years. So, and I can't attribute that to anything, but having a partner and having, cause sometimes you just get mentally bogged down on a deal, you get deal fatigue and you're like, Oh, and it's nice to have somebody to like, you know, bounce something off or hand something off to. And we've got two great assistants that I really got to throw props to uh, my, my office manager and Shiloh's office manager. They just, they basically run the whole show and it's just really that that's been rocket fuel for our business as well. So to, I mean, how to allocate those, there's been several that I, you know, I find this deal. I'm like, Ooh, I, I want to keep this. It's so easy. And it's so easy to just plug it into the system that it kind of just is very organic to just let it go. Um, so I've still done deals on the side to make money because we don't take any cash flow out of our portfolio, uh, my partnership portfolio. So I still have to hustle deals on the side. So whenever I need to make some cash, like I'm building a couple houses this year and I'll make you know a couple of hundred thousand off those houses. And, and that's my you know income for the year. So that's kind of how I allocate. I just, whenever I need a deal to throw, to get some money my way, I, I take a deal and I do it. Otherwise I try to put as much back into that machine as I can because it's, it's growing at kind of a, an exponential rate now. The machine kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, it, getting this partner involved, you and Shiloh kicking butt, I mean, is there is there something that that you two have been able to bring to 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 each other that have accelerated this, or was it just having that partner to bounce these ideas off of? You know, one's the yin, one's the yang. Kind of, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, I was two hundred fifty grand in the hole. My credit was trash, and I had been doing everything. I had done a million dollars worth of transactions without any credit at all. This was just me hustling, using hard money. Because my credit credit was so trash during the last crash, you know, I didn't have that. And then Shiloh came to the table and he had he had a chunk of change and he had good credit. He had a you know good job. And so he was the money guy and I was the real estate guy. And so that's what you know I would bring deals. He would he's gotten really good at finding deals as well, but he's he's really good at getting that money. And now it's the money's become it's it's its whole thing, you know, dealing with banks. He's always arguing with banks, finding new banks, working on a new portfolio refi. It's a whole, it's a whole ordeal just to have that end. And I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that because I, I, no way I could grow near as fast. I mean, I can, I can, I can actually sit around and and look for deals and not have to focus on where's the money going to come from. You know, you know, even though I am involved in that and I help, you know, we do meetups and things and we do a lot of private money 
borrowing, which I'm a little bit involved in. But for the most part, that's kind of how it's separated. You know, he kind of handles the money end of things and I handle the real estate. There's a lot of, you know, we've done a lot of mobile home projects and a lot of de- land development type stuff that I've had to do because I've got the experience that he would have had no, no idea how to even start with. And so he doesn't have to worry about learning all that stuff. And so we're able to just focus on what we're good at and just really help each other accelerate. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Loan Steady. As regular listeners know, we love companies that can improve your financial well-being. We vet sponsors carefully to make sure that they can deliver a great experience to our listeners. So if you're in the market for a home loan or interested perhaps in refinancing or would like to take cash out for a special project or home improvements, especially before rates potentially rise this year, check out Loan Steady. They have 355 star Google reviews, so customers leave happy. They have a special offer for listeners of Millionaires Unveiled. Before April 1, go to www.loansteady.com slash millionaire and apply. And Loan Steady will will waive all lender fees, including application and processing fees. Important terms and conditions apply. For more licensing, please visit www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is Loan Steady LLC, NMLS number 1701910 equal housing lender. So get a rate today and see how Loan Steady can help you reach your financial goals. Go to www.loansteady.com forward slash millionaire to get your special offer today. Is there a target net worth or, or a target amount of units or cash flow that you two are char- trying to target or you personally? <laughs> it keeps moving because um, we keep get, we keep catching our goals. My main, my main goal because I don't really care as much about net worth and Shiloh argues with me because he's, he's dealing with the banks, right? So they look at net worth, but my biggest thing is I want to get to a 20,000 a month cash flow position. And honestly, we're pretty close to being there. If we just stopped the machine right now and just stabilized everything we had, I think we'd be pretty darn close to getting that, but we don't need it right now. And so we're probably just going to keep rolling that monthly cash flow back into the business you know, it allows to do an extra flip or two a month by not taking that money. So that's my goal is to get to the, to get to 20 grand a month and then a hundred grand a month in cash flow would probably be the next step. Interesting. Do you have a timeline of, of when you're trying to get there or how long you think it'll take? I want to be there by the end of the year. I think, uh, I think uh, both of us are at the point where we want to start drawing from the business at some, you know, at some point here in the near future. And we still want to continue to grow, though. So we probably won't draw it all at, at once. We're just going to – we and we do a lot of lease options. We haven't really talked about it yet, but a large portion of our portfolio is lease options. And they're so awesome that we get a premium rent. We get a premium purchase price. We get great tenants. And uh, we don't have to worry about CapEx. We don't have to worry about turnover. There's just so many advantages to lease options. But a lot of our lease options that we started in 2017 that we put them on a five-year lease option, they're coming due next year. And then the next year we did a four-year lease option, and last year we did a three-year lease option. This year we're doing another three-year lease. So, in 2022 through 2025, we're going to have a ton of these lease options coming due. And so we've got to decide, you know, do we want to roll all this into some other project? Uh, do we want to do some development with it? Do we want to do more mobile home parks? We want we're, we're developing a tiny home community out of one of our parks right now. It's really fun. Uh, so we're trying to figure that out. But you know, I want to do a nonprofit you know, with a portion of my cash flow, um, you know, it's just kind of both have, you know, very similar goals too. And so that's been nice to be able to kind of pair those up and, and work, work towards the same thing. Do most of these deals and in, in projects that you're involved with, are they around your area? Initially? Yes. We've since we've recently, 
within the last couple of years, we've branched out to North Carolina and we identified, you know, the triad area in North Carolina, the Greensboro, Burlington, Winston-Salem area, kind of east, uh, west of Raleigh, north of Charlotte there, just to kind of, that's kind of the area that we've focused on and we've been buying up rental properties up there. Uh, also in Montana as well, we do some properties up there. Uh, but for the most part, the majority of our stuff is here in Arizona. It's just so nice. It's it's very temperate. There's no natural disasters. It's pretty predictable. We know the market like back of our hands. But I, we're not scared of other markets. You know, like I say, it's just it's hard. It's hard to kind of get the team going. Like we've got great contractors here, and there's and, and there's a endless supply. Uh, whereas in North Carolina, we have we struggle finding good contractors. We're still in the process of building up the team. So we're not opposed to other markets, um, but the majority are here. So Jason, let me just back up from all the real estate stuff here. How did this start for you? Because in, in, it seemed like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but since about what year, 2005 or so, you've been basically all real estate? 2001 is when I started. 2001. I mean, yep. did you work before then? How, like, nope. how did all this I, get started? Here's a fun fact. I've never had a job, never had a W2 job. I've always done my, my first job in high school. Like I say, I grew up poor. And so if I wanted money for something, I had to earn it. And my dad was a, was a serial entrepreneur. He, he just had the entrepreneurial bug. He, he sold all kinds of things. He's had so many jobs. But anyway, he, he instilled in me that work ethic and that entrepreneurial spirit. So in high school, I had a, a job installing peep sites in people's doors. I'd go and knock on their door and I'd say, hey, you know, for 10 bucks, I'll install this peep site so you can see who's at your door. And that was my first job. And then a little later on in high school, I started a new business that was install, uh, repairing windshield chips in cars. And my dad had done that and kind of blazed the trail for me on that. And so I thought that was a great gig. And so I did that all through high school. And that kind of got me set up to go out on my own. And uh, once I got on, went out on my own, I, I got myself an internship as a appraisal intern. Um, and again, that was up to me to hustle up clients. And, and any money that I had to make was pretty much up to me. And so I've never known the corporate structure. I've never known that security of having a paycheck. It's always been figuring out how I'm going to provide two or three months down the road. And so that that forced me to kind of look ahead. And my uncle's a, a big developer up in Utah. And I ever since I was 14, like a little kid, I always looked at him and I was like, that's cool. I don't, something just resonated with me in real estate. Like you can build something, you can take it from nothing and you can do these things and you can have something that will last for pretty much ever. And that really just resonated with me. So I've always wanted to be a developer and, and really a developer is just a person with that has money or, or connections, right? <laughs> I realized that as I started to get into real estate, like, okay, let me develop some. Oh, I can't do that. Nobody, I don't have any track record. I don't have uh, any money to speak of, you know, so <laughs> you can't just be a developer. And so now we're at the point where we're starting to do some of that stuff that I've always wanted to do. And it's, that's what's really fun to me. So that I guess that bug started with my uncle and just kind of seeing him and, and I don't know what it was, but I've heard that there's more millionaires made in real estate than any other field. And, you know, growing up poor, I was like, I don't, I do not want to be poor. Something in me gave me the drive to really work hard to not be poor and not be just, I needed to be not just poor, but I wanted to be nowhere close to poor. And that was reaffirmed when I lost everything back in 2005. I was like, I never want to feel this way again. I do not like having this anxiety. I don't like having this stress, it, you know, so I, I, <laughs> I stress myself out uh, intentionally. So I don't have to be stressed out unintentionally, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. So what do you feel like, I mean, I know you hit on this a little bit, but what do you feel like was the biggest driver of, of that 2008 experience? Because often, I mean, 90% of the time, I'd say the issue was being over leveraged. 
that you hear if somebody was in a sticky situation like that or lost stuff, right? It's because they they had too much debt and people moved out or whatever and they couldn't make their payments and cover. For you, though, it seemed to be what? That you weren't diversified on specific areas? Well, yes and no. I mean, I still think it, it goes back to your point. It, yes, I was overleveraged. Even at 50%, I was overleveraged because I couldn't cash flow, right? So in the end, if you don't have multiple exit strategies, you don't have multiple exit strategies and you're forced into a position that you don't want to be in. And that's where I was at. I didn't have any other exit strategy other than being able to sell the house. And I couldn't sell the house and I couldn't refi because no banks were refining. Uh, the market was upside down and everything was in chaos. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, ultimately it's still, I was even at 50%, I was over leveraged and that's just a function of what I could rent things for at the time. And, uh, you know, if I could have held out a couple years, even that same property probably would have cash flow because everyone that got foreclosed on, they just went over to rentals, but it took a while for the banks to catch up. Right. And, and I was actually appraising for Fannie Mae during those, you know, 2008 through 2012 years. Those are some of the best years of my life making money. I just made hand over fist as an appraiser. I had 10, 10 appraisals in my queue at any given time. I could, it was basically like printing money for me, uh, which I was very blessed to have because it was a dark time. You know, everybody else was at work and I was hustling these appraisals from Fannie Mae. It was awesome. Was that a commission job? Like yeah, the, yep. the amount, well, so I basically I, I I applied for a uh, a position on the uh, Fannie Mae appraisal panel, and basically I'm one of hundreds of appraisers that they send out deals to. But there were so many deals that they, my queue was just always full, and I could reject them or I could take them. It was just any kind of it was just like a commission job. I'd get paid 350 bucks per appraisal, you know, and and I was good at appraisal. I wasn't good at being an appraiser. But I was good at getting the number and I was good at cranking them out fast. I wasn't really good at all the ins and outs and all the minutia. And that really kind of burned me out on appraisals. But, you know, I was good at making money on appraisals. So how much would they pay per appraisal? What would you get paid? At the time, it was around three fifty. So you could, you could, yeah, you could. I mean, how many could you do a day? Were you cranking out a few a day or a couple? One, my record was 12 in one day. I woke up at like Holy five. Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. And like I said, during that time, I had a queue of 10. And they, and they, as soon as they were, as soon as they were turned in, they would give me more. And so it was literally like as fast as like I had my wife in here typing appraisals, helping me fill out the forms. You know, <laughs> so yeah, we were just cranking. It was awesome. And it, it's honestly, it's like that right now. But I'm just, I'm just not in a position where I want to be that busy anymore. I gave myself what I call a, I kind of retired a little bit. I call it a lifestyle raise. I, I, you know, I quit work at five. I go in at eight. I don't work on weekends. I still try to spend time with my family. So I try to have a little bit of a balanced life because I don't want to, you know, it's not, life isn't all about work, even though I love what I do. And when I go to work, it doesn't feel like work. I still don't want to be working all the time and just chasing that dollar. So I want to do more things that I love. That's why I'm really focused more on the real estate end of things now, the flipping, the investing, because it's, it's a lot less time intensive. And honestly, it's, it's got potential for, it's got, I make more as an investor than I did as an appraiser, even though I made great money as an appraiser. So when did that, that foot off the pedal, foot off the gas start to happen, Jason? Was it hard to make that switch? No, that, that happened first time in 2006. You know, I retired in 2006 when I had made a million bucks. I thought I had made it, you know, it's like, yeah, I've always wanted to be a millionaire and now I'm here, you know? And so I moved to Utah and I, I, I worked on getting my pilot's license. I took some dance classes. I wasn't married at the time. And so, you know, I call it retirement, but I had, I had two, I think I had four appraisal interns at the time, uh, cranking out appraisals. So I was still making good money. Then I lost it all. And, and then for probably about, I'm guessing 2014 is probably when it kind of came back. I realized I had enough. I had, I'd kind of dug myself out of the hole and I'd, I could rest easy a little bit. And 
you know, as the older you get, the more you realize, you know, that this life's not all about working all the time. And, and I, don't, I don't need to hustle as, as much as I did when I was younger. And so I want to take a little bit of time and relax and, and just focus on other things. You know, I enjoy all mm-hmm. kinds of, you know, activities, snowboarding, rock climbing, dirt biking, just all that kind of stuff. And so I just want to spend more time, just have a little more, more balance is all. So of the real estate you hold now, and sorry if you already said this, what percent of it is single family versus something else? Is it, it sounds like it's mostly single family. So yeah, we have about 70, we have 100, 160, 170 doors right now. Um, and 60 of those are, 60 to 70 are single family houses spread across the different states. Um, the rest are in the way of multifamily, mobile home parks, um, s- smaller multifamilies. Wow. 60 to 70 single family homes. And, and you just hire those out to local property, man. Uh, and that's all been within the last three to four years that we've accumulated those because before that I didn't want to be a landlord and I fought it for years. So I was like, I don't want to be a landlord. I, you know, I just like hustling deals. And then finally Shiloh and I tried it on one of our deals. We were, we were fixing and flipping like six deals at a time. And then we realized, Hey, let's hold one of these and see what happens. And then, you know, the lease option thing just kind of took off. So we, hmm. we just kind of took off. Sorry. What was your last question? I was asking if you hire uh, property managers well, for all of yeah, the no, different we do, we do it all in house. And it's very interesting. You would think with 160 doors, how could we handle that much? And like I said, with the lease options, these are different types of tenants. These aren't, these aren't the people that are calling you on Christmas Eve with a toilet broken. These are homeowners that are renting it for the time being. And that's their mindset, right? These people, they want to own the home. They, they think of it as their home. And they're responsible for the majority of the repairs anyway. We're Ultimately, we're responsible. You know, The Landlord-Tenant Act says we have to be responsible for certain things. But if we go in and we repair those things, it just gets added to their bill anyway at the end. So their, their incentive is to keep the property up, keep it nice. If anything goes wrong and it's, it's minor, they just fix it. If it's major, we come in and fix it and we just tack it onto their price. So we don't get a lot of calls. And honestly, to, to handle 60 of these lease options doesn't take more than a handful of hours a month. The majority of our time is invested in multifamilies and dealing with all that crap that goes along with that renter mentality. So Jason, as you've gone on this journey and you've built up this real estate portfolio, is there one thing or one book or something that's influenced you the most to be as successful as you are? Oh man, there's so many books and it's so hard to target just one of them. I think just the ability or the desire to, and the fact that I was able to listen to a ton of books because I was driving my car doing appraisals all the time. I had a ton of car time. I, I don't know if I can pinpoint it to one book that really did it, but one that really helped accelerate. And it's, this is this theory has been perpetuated through several books, but it's the Pareto principle. The four hour work week really got me excited to look at my business and be like, where can I focus where can I focus that 10% of my energy that gives me 90% of my results? That in conjunction with the slight edge and atomic habits, the atomic habits and slight edge, man, those books together, that's a, that's a recipe for success right there. It's just, that, that's just, that, that one really motivated me and really helped me kind of propel myself to the next level. But there's just so many books. It's so hard to say, but those are the three that come to mind. Do you spend any time on, on personal development right now? Uh, as much as I can get, like I'm, I, I listen to at least an audio book a month. More, if like it depends on what I'm doing, really. You know, like if I'm if I'm building a house and I have to drive, anytime I'm in the car, I'm listening to an audio book. Anytime I'm going traveling, I'm listening to an audio book. So as much as I can, I try to. I, I really am a big believer in personal development. The more quivers, the more errors you have in your quiver, uh, you know, the more deals you can close. It's just it's just uh, all 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 advantages. Yeah, totally. 
Is there something out there, you know, relating to an experience or, you know, a deal or something? I know you mentioned that, that you really kind of want to get into this development side of, of, of real estate, but is there something out there that you're really striving for career-wise or or an experience that it's on your bucket list you haven't done yet? Oh, that's a good question. Well, this, this tiny home development that I briefly mentioned, that's a re- really fun project. I like any kind of development that that has to do with just developing land from nothing. I don't know that I really have a bucket list of things. I kind of, there was this one deal that I did when you mentioned experiences. I did this deal. It was $105,000. I bought it. It was a, it was a house on an acre lot. It was a tiny house. I ended up thinking I was just going to go in and replace the trusses and do a new roof. Ended up getting in there and, and opening up the walls and sand started pouring out of the walls. And I looked at it and there was pallets. This house was made out of pallets and citrus boxes and there was sand for insulation. So I ended up having to bulldoze the house and I'm looking at this deal being like, I'm going to lose my shirt on this. How can I make this work? So I buckled down and and realized, okay, let me see if I can build a new house. And so I took that money, I took it that property and I built a house and I parceled off the rest of the acreage. And I was able, I lost about 20 grand on that house, but I had that all that extra acreage and I was able to build one other house. And then I broke even on the whole project. And then these other two houses, I'm going to make probably a hundred grand each on each one of these houses that I've done. So by chance, I was able to kind of fulfill that, you know, desire of becoming a developer just by kind of falling backwards into this deal and having to having to make it work so I don't lose money. And in the end, it turned out to be one of my best deals that I've ever done because I just happened to have this property and the zoning just worked out perfectly. And, you know, so I don't know that there we do have another project down in uh, Florence, Arizona. We're looking to do possibly a mixed use where there's a commercial downstairs and a residential above. I'm pretty pretty excited about that project too. It, it helps get my creativity juices flowing, and and I, lo- I love the design aspect of it. I thought I'd want to be a drafter when I was young, so I really love the fact that just you know putting together different ideas on how to make things look and how to make them function. Yeah, what's been your worst deal? Was that your worst deal, or is there a deal that you lost well, money? No, on? That, that ended up being my best deal. Uh, my worst deal, honestly, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm going to take out. The ones, the worst deal I probably did was a hotel. It's a funny story. I bought this worthless piece of land in Arizona City, or sorry, in the north uh, northwestern part of Arizona. I was going to do a palm tree farm, and it didn't have any access to it, so I negotiated some easement access, and I ended up going a different direction, and I ended up trading that piece of land to a, a owner of a hotel who wanted to owner finance and get out of the hotel business, and I bought that deal, and oh man, it was like I was freshly married. I was probably, as I don't know, I was only married a couple months. And so I took my new bride. We moved into this nasty hotel where there's druggies and there's all these nasty tenants. And we kicked them all out. And we had to remodel the whole hotel while we're living there. We couldn't leave because we're operating the hotel at the same time. We didn't have an assistant manager at the time. Uh, so we're, we're basically confined to this nasty, old, gross hotel and trying to make it work. So that even though we ended up making money on the deal, it was probably the worst deal just because of the the psychological fact that we couldn't leave. And oh man, we, anytime we see a little hotel, <laughs> my, wife, my wife won't even let me buy hotels anymore. She's just like, you buy whatever you want. Just don't buy a hotel. She's scarred for life after that. Yeah. If we, if we were in the same, we ended up moving from there and we were absentee managers and it just didn't work out as well. You know, if we were, if we were local, it would have worked out fine, but you know, <laughs> in the end, that was, that's my worst deal. I, we, we don't lose money. Like we won't, I've only ever lost, I lost a thousand bucks one time on a deal and Shiloh actually made 8,000. So I'm still calling it a win for the team. But other than the crash in 2008, we don't, we don't lose money. So we don't really have any bad deals yet. I mean, cross my fingers, knock on wood. We're pretty conservative. We, we try to do it right. 
Yeah, yeah. So let's just wrap up here, Jason, with some rapid fire questions, and then we'll go into some last words of advice and, and okay. any mistakes. So, what's been your what, what's your annual household spending? Eighty thousand, eighty to ninety thousand. Okay, as much as you're comfortable sharing, what's been the range of of your household income? Household income. Well, like I like I say, now it's around uh, a million a year. Okay, and you started what? Probably, I mean, working hourly, I guess, right? No, like I say, I never had a job, so this has all been. I've never really had that. I've always been around the hundred to two hundred thousand dollar range as an appraiser. I would I was probably pushing the two hundred, and then when I got my real estate license, I did them both together and pushed three hundred thousand. And then I started investing, and that took a little dip because it took me a, a while to get that ramped up. But then then that took over, and now I make about a million a year. But okay. the trouble is, it's not. Uh, it's all a lot of it's equity and not cash flow yet. It's tied up, all right? Yeah. Uh, what's worth the money to you, and what's not worth spending more money on? I don't spend money on cars. I don't spend money on a whole lot of anything, really. Uh, I have a family of four boys, so that eighty grand uh, seems sounds like a lot of money, but it goes pretty fast with four boys, and it all goes back into real estate. I'm a real estate junkie. I'm a deal junkie. I'm addicted. What's been the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Uh, the current car I have, which is a 2011 Toyota Tundra, I bought it for eighteen thousand dollars, which I bought in Canada for half price because the dollar was crazy, and uh, it was a twenty six thousand dollar truck at the time, but I got it for eighteen. And what motivates you now? What, what's your motivator to succeed, to grow the net worth, to get to sixteen or twenty thousand or a hundred thousand a month in in cash flow? What, what's your driver, and has that shifted through the years? Uh, initially, safety and security and fear of not having. Now it's shifted to just really securing that security and having that perpetual cash flow forever, and then uh, getting that nonprofit going that I started that I want to really ramp up. That's something that I want to focus on and kind of, you know, transition into throughout the years. So just in closing, Jason, what's your advice to somebody that may be listening to this and says, hey, I want to be like that guy. I want to do real estate. I just I don't know where to start or how do I do it? What would be your advice to them? I would say if you want to be an investor, I would learn how to do appraisals. Now, you don't have to be an appraiser. Just learn how to be really good at valuing properties. I think that's the number one skill that you can have, really. The rest, the rest can really be outsourced. You can even outsource that. You just make sure the person that you have is 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 good. But that's that's probably what I'd focus on is knowing the numbers, knowing having in, uh, invest in yourself, and really increase those skills. And then what, you get to a certain point where you have the knowledge, you can't help but do the deals. So you know, there's a, there's an element of you know fear at first, but then once you know once you get that knowledge, that fear goes away. I started a YouTube channel that. I've been kind of sharing with people how to do step-by-step things. And so there's plenty of stuff on the internet. Blue, uh, There's just so many different sources you can go to for to get all this information. It's not it's not like it was back when I started. Um, it was just so easy now to get anything you want. Even, and I learn something every day. It's not like I know everything, but uh, there's just a, a lot to learn. And it, there's a lot of fun to be having, tons of money to be made. Well, thanks so much, Jason, for coming on. Really fun interview and in all real estate. Interesting to hear about your story and, and perspective. Everybody has Jason net worth of over $3 million. Thanks for coming on tonight. Thanks. Appreciate having me. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.